Stephanie is here for those of you with children. I'd like to go back and get your Bible boxes. The rest of us, let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We've been spending some of our spring season and certainly Eastertide in the first letter that John the Beloved wrote. And so we're going to start at 1 John 3.16, which is, I heard a series one time of all the 3.16 verses in the Bible. And it's amazing to see how that uh, communicates the triune emphasis of God. As the candidates of the 2016 presidential election are starting to present their, uh, themselves for our consideration, I came across something that happened in the last election. As you know, the media tries to create firestorms wherever they can, and they use all kinds of statistics, and they try to pit us one against another, and they've decided that, in fact, we should have warring camps between the red states and the blue states. Uh, never mind the fact that 48 of the states are a purple state, and that uh, we're a blend of all different kinds of political uh, persuasions, that uh, their war just does not match. But the most egregious example of this that happened in the last presidential election was done by CNN. Uh, they put together a quiz on the online uh, CNN website asking us, do you believe in the red state Jesus or the blue state Jesus? Now... The implication of their quiz and the questions were just theologically inept. But the implication is that we as Christians take the teachings of Jesus Christ and we divide them. And we accept some of them and we try to live them out and we reject others. It also implies that Jesus himself could be put into modern American political categories as though that's a possibility Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. As I told you a few years ago, I was uh, questioned by a person, quite lengthy questionnaire, uh, about my political views on the phone. And the interviewer, I told you, ended in exasperation when she said, what are you? <laughs> and I said, a Christian. And that's not on her form, I don't think. But this quiz of the blue state and the red state Jesus is true in one sense. Everybody on all sides of the Christian faith struggles to put into practice all the teachings of Jesus Christ. He is so profound and so holistic when he talks about humanity and life and how we're to live that even in our own Christian faith, we often divide into various perspectives, emphasizing one area of his teaching over another. And we divide then into groups, and we make differences then between various branches of Christian faith. We've seen this down throughout church history. When you take my membership class, you know that we walk through all of those theological distinctions and what happened and why different Christians thought in different ways as they listened to the teachings of Christ. It is, of course, most dramatic in its divisiveness during those 1500s, 1600s, 1700s when the Reformation hit the church and uh, the church exploded into so many various expressions of the, the faith. 
But it's even here in the writings of John. It, it has begun to occur just in that first century as Christians are attempting now, just a few years after Jesus Christ lived, to put into practice what he says. And so John says in the text that we're about to read, do not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. He's saying, yes, love is primary. It's primary in the Christian expression of life. That is the primary purpose. And it is the defining characteristic of the Christian life. But it cannot be something we just talk about. It can't just be a theological theory. It cannot just be that, oh, you know, we are the people who love. And yet then we don't actually put it into action in a truthful, wise, and compelling way. Uh, theologians, of course, divide those two things into orthodoxy, what we are rightly thinking about God, and orthopraxy, what we practice about God, and making sure that it is holistic, biblical, and true Christian faith. But even, even once we've said that, that, that you need to put love into action or it's not really love, we all know the old saying that that is easier said than done. What looks like truthful action expressing God's love is so contextualized, not just within a given culture or a given family, but within a given individual's life, so that it's hard for us as the church to come up with a unified theory or a completely comprehensive ethic uh, in, in essence, each one of us as Christians have to take the responsibility for the unique decision that we're going to make each day, in each moment, and in each relationship. Ultimately, it comes down to each of us putting love into action and asking God's Spirit to guide in that process. Let me give just one example of how uh, love is oftentimes uh, spoken about as being love, but it's not actually love. It's a harmful behavior. And I, I could literally give thousands of these, but let me just give one of them. Uh, as a counselor, one of the things I have to be very careful about is helping a person to love in ways that are helpful to the person they're loving. It's very easy for an, an individual to say, okay, I'm going to love in the ways that satisfy me, not experienced by love in the person. For example, this is a classic one that is a difficult one. If a parent says that they love their child so much that they, they can't expect them to get out of bed on their own, they're going to help them throughout junior high and high school get out of bed. I was at a, uh, sitting around with some college professors and they were talking about how uh, a freshman parent had called up and asked that the college assign a faculty member to help their freshman get out of bed in the morning because uh, she had always done it for him. There are also parents who say, oh, you know, I can't expect my child to be responsible with chores around the house. Or when they become a teenager, I can't expect my child to have to go to work and earn money to help pay for their clothes or their phone or their devices, and on and on. Now, that type of love will not create a mature, self-reliant, capable human being. 
Rather, that type of behavior is not really truthful love in the creation of a human being that can live an abundant life. The tendency, the, the desire is, is accurate. They want to help their child have a great life and they think that the best way would be to let them just simply have a childhood where they don't have to do anything. But the problem is that kind of love creates an adult who doesn't have the life skills that it takes to be a, a self-reliant and capable, mature, and responsible individual. And so they cannot then live an abundant life without being dependent upon someone else uh, to take care of basic life needs. Now, as I said, that's just one example of a thousand ways. And we could talk about it in, in uh, national uh, programs and in uh, recovery programs and in all kinds of things in which well-intentioned love can create an action that is not based on truth, but is in fact based on a dysfunctional attempt to love, which creates more harm than good. Now that wise, truthful love is what we want to explore together uh, today. So let's go to John, John 3, 16, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to go through eight verses through the 24th. John writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gives. So keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, you've told us that loving you and loving others, loving ourselves, is the core of the Christian faith. That it's what you came to teach us. And yet, Father, it's, it's far more complex than that, and we all recognize it. We need your help today. Thank you for John, the beloved, that wrote these deep and abiding words. Speak to each of us. Open our hearts and minds in whatever ways uh, we need your instruction. And allow us, when we leave this place, to be more capable of being your instruments of love. And, of course, we do it to your glory and to your praise. Amen. Now, what is helpful in what John says to us is he gives us some underlying principles of how this love God asks us to live is something that is established so primal on Jesus 
and on his transforming of our hearts and our lives. That he says in verse 1, this is how we know what love is. So if you want to know what, what is love, which is a great question, an existential question, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now Jesus said it in this way when he was with his disciples in the upper room. You remember in the upper room discourse the night before he laid down his life on the, the next day when they arrested him after this evening together. Jesus said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. When I was in college, there was a, a wonderful romantic film that all of us fell in love with. It was called Love Story. Now, it was horribly schmaltzy. And it was so romantic that all of us should have run, but we loved it. It was the great film of the day. But it was known for one specific line that became iconic to our generation. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Now, is that love? Contrasted to this foundational statement of Jesus Christ, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Interestingly, from a counseling perspective, one of the characteristics of narcissism is an unwillingness and perhaps an inability to say I'm sorry. Often called a malignant self-love. In narcissism, there's no willingness to lay down even a moment of one's life for another. And if you want to reverse it, here as Ali McGraw is telling him that he doesn't have to say he's sorry, it's a very dysfunctional behavior, and it's not love, to not allow the other person to accept responsibility for their behavior and do a true apology. A true apology is, I'm sorry, and I regret how my behavior has harmed you, and I promise I won't do that again. That true apology is absolutely necessary for any kind of love relationship that is real. Because none of us are perfect and we all need to say and accept the behavior that we've done. So if love is not this dysfunctional, then what does it look like to lay down your life for another? What does that truthful action wise love look like. Well, John continues with a very powerful statement. In verse 17, he says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Now, it's that phrase, but has no pity on them. That's the key to this question. I actually like the Greek language far better than the English, especially this word pity that this group of translators decides to use. The Greek says it using very root words, not the, the uh, 
words that would be used in a sentence like that. But kaleo es spalangnan, autos updat, autos. Or literally, close the bowels of him from him. That word, spalangnan, is a Greek word that describes the source of the compassion, our benevolence, our affection, our kindness, our love. In the English language, we don't use bowels to describe the source of that. Our idiom is the word heart. The heart is the place where these feelings are. And we love someone with all our heart. We have kindness and compassion upon them. So to put this, this sentence into English idioms, we could translate it, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but closes his or her heart, compassion, benevolence, kindness, closes his or her love to them, then how can we say the love of God is in that person? So we're not talking about pity, we're talking about love that will get involved enough to lay down the moments, the pride, the reality of life in kind, benevolent, compassionate, loving ways so that we truly love the other. Now that's very different. It's love in action, but it's a, it's a truthful, wise love in action. So what does that mean? How do we love wisely and truthfully? How do we love a brother or sister needing material help, for example, in this circumstance? We love them uniquely in their specific circumstances in ways that truly help. Let me say it again. We love them uniquely in their specific circumstances in ways that truly help. For some, it might be, in fact, giving something to them, an actual material thing. For others, it might be training them to be able to provide for themselves. For others, it might be sharing something with them that allows us to together meet needs. And still for others, it might be holding them accountable for something so that they are cared for. Love that's true, love that's active, has to, by the complexity of life, come in many, many unique forms in the unique circumstances in which we are laying down our lives, our compassion, our heart, joining together, giving a hand, and giving a partnership to that. And that true love and action, by the very complexity, requires each of us to take responsibility for deciding what is loving at this moment with this person by the inspiration of the Spirit. But that leads us then to the last guidance of John. How do we know what it is we should specifically do? In this unique situation with this specific person, John says, well, God is living in your hearts, so listen to your heart. He says it this way, this is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, if our hearts condemn us, if when we walk away or through with it, 
something stirs and it's not right and we don't feel at peace with what we did, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, that he's speaking through our hearts, and that he knows everything in all the complexity of what we were trying to do. And so it's stirred up. It's not right. Something's wrong. But then he goes on to say, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence then before God and we'll receive from him anything we ask. He'll, he will help us to do what we believed was the right and true and loving thing to do in this specific circumstance with this specific person, this specific ministry, this specific uh, situation. And then we will receive from him what needs to be done because he's promised us that he will work through us. We've kept his commandments and we do what pleases him. So in this life of love, it seems that no one can say to another person, oh, that wasn't the way you should have loved them. In reality, each of us are going to stand before God and receive from him the guidance we need to know how to love. And it's not for another person to say, oh, if I were in your place, I would have done it this way. We can seek counsel if we want. We can seek guidance. But we can't judge another in their sincere desire to do that. It's up to each of us in our hearts of love to listen closely to the compassion and the kindness that God has placed within our hearts. But that, of course, takes us then to the very last question. What if we don't have loving hearts? What if we don't care about our brother or our sister? What if we live for ourselves in this self-centered realm where we're perfectly content to let people live without basic needs? We've got ours, and so who cares what's happening to the orphans in India or the child down the street or the person in the pew? Well, John concludes that the heart has that has no love does not have Jesus Christ living in them. Something has gone core wrong at the very basic thing. He says, verse 23, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And to believe in the name, the authority, the responsibility, the power, the, the resources of the one for whom we are an, an ambassador, an agent, to know that he's at work in the world. And then to love one another as he commands us and empowers us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know by the spirit that he gave us. Our hearts are, as Wesley said, strangely warmed. There's a compassion that comes upon us at the core of our sense of who we are and what we're about and what, how we interact and, and how we are one with the people around us. There's a wonderful phrase that was created by Bob Pierce who founded World Vision International. He said it, Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. If we live in Christ and Christ's Spirit lives in us, then we share 
the same heart. And the more time we spend with God, the more our heart will beat and break in unison with who God is. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is, do we love as God loves? Are we willing to lay down our lives moment by moment as Jesus Christ has laid down his life for us? Let's spend time with him.